I mean, Atlanta has the peach drop. Miami has the orange drop. You know, what is Ohio going to do? Have the Buckeye drop? I mean, it's just ridiculous. But at any rate, um, I, we all were probably up late last night, and, and I get it. I, I totally understand. Uh, and thank God he kept us another year, right? I am just thrilled by that, thrilled by it. And uh, I'm just excited that we're here. And just for a few minutes, I'm just so happy to see everybody. Just a couple, couple shout-outs. Good to see Tiff. Beecham from L.A., one of my favorite parts of the country. <laughs> I don't mean Lower Akron either, you know, <laughs> the, the L.A. <laughs> so glad to see you, Tim. Glad you're here safe and sound. So I ask you guys to turn to, to Luke uh, chapter 7. And just a quick thing to give you a little note on what we're doing going forward. In 2023, we're going to be studying how to become like Jesus. The whole year is going to be dedicated to an in-depth, deep-dive study, all 52 weeks, at least the weeks that I'm preaching, we're going to be studying about transformation into becoming in the image of Christ, being like Jesus. Both Sunday school and sermons will be on the same topic every week, so you'll get notes from me rather than getting two sets of notes. You only get one set of notes, which will include both what I'll be talking about in Sunday school and church. So please come to Sunday school from 10 to 1045. And uh, we never get done at 1045, but we're, gonna, we're trying in 2023 to turn over a new leaf. Today, we stopped even early, so we're, we're trying to get better. But we want to learn about Jesus. Amen. Okay, so we're just going to jump right into this. Here's what it says in the King James Version. Where is Rosie when I need her to say yay? But that's okay. We're going to be looking at some other translations as well. Here's what St. Luke chapter 7 verse 1 says. This is the story about the healing of the centurion's servant. And it says, now when he had entered, I'm sorry, when he had ended all of his sayings, by the way, it just kind of, this is just a little pet peeve of mine. It's no big deal, so don't trip over it. But I kind of, I kind of cringe when I see references to Jesus using the pronoun he with a lowercase h. I just, I correct it. I just actually write in my Bible, capital H. If it's him, capital H. If it's he, capital H. You know, I'm not into the whole big pronoun. I know that we live in an age where pronouns are really kind of like on the front burner and people discuss it and you got to make. I get emails all the time, pronouns, she, hers, her, or he, him. You know, and I just ignore it because as far as I'm concerned, that's immaterial to the fact that we're corresponding. It doesn't matter if it's male or female. What the gender is not, report, not important. The content of the message is what's important. It's what's important, right? I want to know the content, not the gender of the person that sent me an email. Okay, I'm off on another tangent. That's just my IT coming out. But when I see a lowercase h, I just correct it and just put uppercase h. Now, when Jesus, he, capital H, had ended all of his sayings in the audience. By the way, the actual Greek word there for audience really means in the hearing of the people. So Jesus has just completed, and this, you know, it's amazing that we're talking about this because I just completed a three-month study with you guys on the Sermon on the Mount, right? We went to the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, and you get an echo of that or a companion passage of that in Luke chapter 6. So Jesus has just finished this a monumental sermon where he just goes through all these things, including the Beatitudes. Just an amazing sermon. You guys should just ba basically go back and look at that again because it's, it's just off the chain, the greatest sermon ever preached. And so now he comes to the city of Capernaum. I may sometimes pronounce it Capernaum. 
I've heard it pronounced by people a lot smarter than me, Capernaum. So I'm not sure the exact pronunciation. If you go to the Internet, you can get two different pronunciations of it. So I may say Capernaum, Capernaum. But at any rate, Jesus retires from the mountain area where the Sermon on the Mount was preached to Capernaum. By the way, Capernaum is about 82 miles north of Bethlehem. You say, Pastor Will, why is that important? Who cares? We haven't been to Israel, aren't planning on going to Israel. And if we go, we probably won't go to Capernaum. Well, probably most of the tours that you will go on in Israel, if you ever go, will include Capernaum or Capernaum because that was Jesus' headquarters when he was here on earth. He left Bethlehem where he was born, which is in the southern part of the state. Imagine Mansfield, Ohio. And he moved his headquarters from Mansfield to Cleveland, which is about 80 miles due north. And that's what Jesus did. He left Bethlehem not because he necessarily wanted to. He was basically run out of Galilee. Really, they chased him out. He, he was threatened. So he couldn't really find anywhere, uh, you know, I'm sure he could have, but he chose to come 82 miles north to Capernaum. And he set up headquarters there. But it wasn't by accident. Peter and James were born in Capernaum. That was their home. They had a fishing trade there right off the Sea of Galilee. Also, I believe Andrew was from Capernaum. Not only that, um, Jesus did most of his miracles in Matthew 8 and 9, where you get this whole lit, lit, litany of miracles were done in the city of Capernaum. So it was an important city. In Greek, it means the city of consolation or sorrow. And you'll see why in a minute that it was considered the city of sorrow because Jesus is just going to unload on it in Matthew 11. But at any rate, so Jesus moves 82 miles north pretty much by foot. I don't think there were any Oldsmobiles or Pontiacs available back then in the first century. And Jesus didn't, to my knowledge, own a donkey or a horse. Matter of fact, he had to borrow a donkey to do the great, the great entrance on Palm Sunday. He borrowed somebody's donkey when they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, he was on a borrowed donkey even for that. That's the only time I'd known Jesus to actually mount an animal. So he didn't have a horse. He didn't have a donkey. He didn't own a car because there were none. So I'm assuming that he walked from Mansfield to Cleveland at some point in time during his lifetime to move from Bethlehem to Capernaum. Okay, so that's where we pick up our story right here. Luke chapter seven, verse one. We're introduced to the city of Capernaum, not for the first time, but certainly for the most important time. It says in verse two, and a certain centurion servant by the way, the word servant is doulos in the Greek, D-O-U-L-O-S, which also means slave. Which, every time I read, I just wonder about that. Slavery, has been going on a long time. Uh, it was never, ever condoned. But we'll talk about that when we get to that part. We probably won't get to it today because I'm only going to probably talk about Capernaum today. But I wanted you to know that that word servant is sometimes rendered slave. And sometimes it's rendered employee. And he was dear, the Bible says in verse 2 of Luke 7, and the certain centurion servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. Matthew chapter 8 verse 6 says that the young man had been in bed. I know you're not on the Okay. <laughs> Somebody, uh, can I usher help Sister Beth out? She's, she's on her phone in service. I'm, I'm here preaching, but that's okay. Uh, the young servant was lying in bed, paralyzed in terrible, terrible pain. 
Uh, I don't know. I don't know anyone that's personally have been paralyzed that I knew personally, but I know reading about reading about um, trying to think of a young lady, um, Johnny Erickson Tata. Thank you. Just reading about her story and listening to her on WCRF at times, which is 103 FM. Uh, here in Cleveland, she talked. To, she talked sometimes about the excruciating pain. It's not just the disconfiguration or di uh, disfiguring of her body, rather, but it's also the pain that some paralysis patients endure. Andy can speak more to that because she knows uh, probably a lot more about that than I ever will. But paralysis can be very, very painful. Actually, I'm going to show you a clip here in a second. Hey, Justin, can you bring, get this clip uh, posted ready? It's, uh, it's there in the middle of the screen. It's called the Centurion. Yep, that's it. It's uh, just two minutes and 14 seconds. Can you go back to the beginning of it, Justin? And I'll cue you in when I want you to start it because I need to bring my camera over for the people at home. We we're going to do a shared screen through Zoom, but I thought so many people probably would miss it because they wouldn't have the ability to uh, render a video on their device. So I'm going to just show it to you with my cell phone. But I want you to hear this. This is very, very interesting. And I'm not going to be long, I promise you. It says in verse 3 of Luke 7 that, And when he had heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. Oh, you're going to do it, Justin? Okay, I'll let you know when. And it says, For he loveth our nation. Make sure you kill your audio. We're going to use the audio in the house for it. It says, for he had built us a synagogue. I did a little bit of research just on the archaeological discoveries there around Capernaum and found out that there were two synagogues there. There was one synagogue that had been leveled. It was raised at some point in time before the first century. And there was another synagogue built on the same footprint as the original one. This centurion probably is the one who financed the second uh, synagogue, which is basically a house of worship. It's where Jews even today go to worship, they learn about the word, and they worship the Lord. Well, this synagogue was built by a Gentile, this second one in Capernaum, which has now been leveled because Jesus was so mad at this city that he just destroyed everything. This city got a, a, worse, a worse punishment and judgment than even Sodom and Gomorrah, if you can believe that. Well, you can because it says it in Matthew 11. But the point I'm making is that this city has been erased from the planet Yes, there is a, still a residual little footprint about, of Capernaum over in, Jew, uh, in, in Israel now. But it's, it's basically an abandoned town. There is no inhabitants. Less than 1,500 people are there. They don't even call it Capernaum anymore. It's a city that's been reduced to basically a couple little docking uh, areas for boats and, and a, few, uh, a few fishermen. But essentially, the city does not exist. No mayor, nothing, because the Lord punished it and he judged it and he erased it from the earth that's serious how bad do you have to be <laughs> oh my goodness how bad do you have to be to just get extinguished from the planet earth that's rough i mean Sodom and gomorrah yeah we know about them in genesis 19 they got wiped out but that's because i mean imagine a city the lord couldn't even find the lord couldn't even find he started, Abraham started with 50 righteous men. You know the story, right? Genesis 19. He couldn't find 50 righteous men, which sounds really weird for a city that's considered the cities of the plain. By the way, most of you guys think about Sodom and Gomorrah. You think about just a twin city, Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, Minneapolis and St. Paul. 
you know, twin city. No, Sodom and Gomorrah, if you read the story closer or you read the account in Genesis 19, closer, I don't like to say the word story because it sounds like it's a fairy tale or the Lord of the Rings. When you read the account closer, that's right, that was a shout out to you, pay for your birthday. When you, read, <laughs> when you read the account closer in Genesis 19, you realize that it wasn't just the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was the cities of the plains. The Lord destroyed multiple cities. Multiple cities were engulfed in flames. And listen, here's what makes it more of an indictment. Abraham interceded on behalf of a lot and said, Lord, would you spare these cities if you could find 50 righteous men? The Lord said, okay, I, if you find 50 righteous men, I won't destroy the cities. And you know, he kept bargaining. He then went to 40, he went to 30, he went to 20, and he got down to 10. He said, Lord, peradventure, that's what it says in King James Version. That's why y'all should sometimes read some of the more modern versions. Uh, at times, because we don't use the word peradventure anymore, which was code for, Lord, if you will indulge me one more time. He said, what if I can only find 10 righteous men? Will you spare the city? And the Lord said, okay, that's it now, 10 men. Now, it should have been easy, right? It should have been easy because there was Lot and his wife. Theoretically, there's two. Lot had two daughters who at some point got married, so there were two sons-in-law, so now we're up to six. Now, you only need to just convince four neighbors, a distant uncle, and a third cousin, and you're in there. <laughs> right? This can't be that hard, right? Y'all with me? How, how hard is it to find ten people that are righteous in the city of Cleveland? <laughs> I mean, poor, poor Lot. Like, not, there was, like, not, not only could he not find 10 people to spare the cities, he couldn't even find five. Wait a minute. He couldn't even find five because his sons-in-laws, sons-in-laws, sons-in-laws. Okay, well, his, his, the two guys that married his two daughters, even they wouldn't go with him. They laughed at him. They thought he was joking. If you look at the original Hebrew, it sounds like that, that they thought that he was being funny, that he was just kidding with them. Say, well, I ain't leaving Sodom and Gomorrah. Dude, are you crazy? I was born here. So he got out of town with himself, his wife, and his two daughters. And as Paul Harvey used to say, and you know the rest of the story, the wife looked back. She was crystallized. The daughters plied him with alcohol and got pregnant. And it was just a bad scene. So the bottom line is, is that finding righteous people isn't all that easy. Even when you have multiple cities to work with. And the Lord said, you know what? Those cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities of the plain, will be better off in judgment than this city called Capernaum. That is a major indictment. And this is why. Here's what he goes on to say. The Bible says in verse 4, and when Jesus came... And they came to Jesus and besought that he would help him, saying, He is worthy for whom he should do this. For he loved our nation, and I'm in verse 5 of Luke 7, and he built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, that's verse 6. And he was now not far from the house. The centurion sent his friend, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself. That means, Lord, don't worry about this. I got this. You don't need to even come any further. He says, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest even enter my roof. I'm going to get into that in a few weeks to come. He says, wherefore, neither I thought myself worthy to come to thee, but I say in a word, 
I love that. Say in a word. The New American Standard, the NIV says, say the word. Here in the King James Version says, say a word. Wow, that's powerful. We're going to go into what a word means uh, later uh, in the weeks to come. And my servant shall be healed. For I'm also a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. I say to one, go, and he goeth. I say to another, come, he cometh. I say to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. This is just amazing what this guy is saying and how the Lord is just being blown away by what this guy is saying. When Jesus heard these things in verse 9 of chapter 7 of Luke, he marveled at them. By the way, the word, by the way, the word marveled is our word for amazed or astonished or wonderment. And so I started scratching my head, you know, in the last weeks because you guys wouldn't let me preach in the month of December. So I started scratching my head and thinking about when I get a chance to speak again in January about this word amaze. And I started thinking, I started writing down some questions that I wanted to answer for myself in this little mini series on Luke 17. And one of the questions was, how can God, the son, that's Jesus, who, by the way, is also omniscient. That means in plain English, knows all things. How could he be surprised? How could he be amazed? How could he marvel at anything? How could he be astonished when he is God in the flesh? I'm going to answer that question for you, but not today. So it says, <laughs> that's called a teaser. <laughs> so, so he said, he looked into the people and he said that follow him. I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. And so I looked up this term great faith because I thought, okay, Jesus obviously is very stingy with that phrase, great faith. And I found only one other case where it says that he was amazed with great faith. And that was in Matthew 15, the Syrophoenician woman. Remember the Syrophoenician woman? If you don't remember her, for your homework this week, read Matthew 15. It's only about 12 verses that talk about this lady. But what was so amazing about this lady is that she had a daughter that was back at home sick. This was one of Jesus' two, maybe three. Yeah, there were three because the nobleman's son. Jesus did three what I call drive-by healings, which basically were long-distance healings. That is, he wasn't present at the point of the healing, he just spoke the word. And wherever they were geographically, the healing took place. Where Jesus was, was where he was. Where they were, was where the healing took place. And the two were not in the same location. One was the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. The other one was, the other one was, <laughs> the other one was uh, the nobleman's son. And the third one, hi, Thomas, love you, man. And the third one was, guys, wait for it. The third one was the, the centurion servant. The Lord wasn't even there. You know what? That should encourage you. Well, here's what it should encourage you. You don't have to be in church, in the church building, and laid on hands by the elders to get healed. You don't have to be in a place where there is a revival or a healing service going on. You don't have to run to a crusade where they have this faith healer that's doing miracles and signs and wonders. You know why? Because God is present everywhere. And wherever you are, wherever you are, you are in his presence. Amen. Amen. 
I'm excited about that. I'm excited about that whole concept of great faith. I'm excited about the whole idea that the Lord can reach me. He can touch me. He can heal me. He can deliver me. He can fix my situation. He can heal yeah. my body. Yeah. He can heal my finances. He can heal my relationships. He can straighten out my issues with my boss, with my coworkers, with my professor, with my teacher, wherever God is, he can fix the problem for us. Amen. 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 So let me just give you this two-minute, 14-minute clip. We're going to run it, if you will, Justin, on Luke 7, 10, a possibly a portrayal of how things could have been when Jesus encountered the centurion's delegation. Here we go. returned to the house, they found the servant well. Amen. Thank you, Justin. Amen. 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 You can stop it because it's going to loop. You can just stop it on the laptop. So I, I can't relate to the pain that the guy was in that was paralyzed. But I tell you, sometimes, sometimes when we're sick, we feel like we're at the point of death, don't we? We feel like, oh, Lord, are you coming to take me? You know, if you're a fan of Sanford and Son, you say, oh, Elizabeth, this is the big one. You know, <laughs> you, know you feel like sometimes it's like all she wrote. But I, I, I want to just say this, uh, and I'm going to close. I, uh, the reason I wanted to play this clip is because I wanted you to kind of get a sense of what it may have been like for Jesus to hear this delegation of Jewish elders, which was basically older men who were in a position of leadership who had the responsibility of teaching in the synagogue. 
So obviously there was a relationship between the centurion and these guys where they would go on behalf as an emissary for him and go and appeal to Jesus and say, Lord, would you come and heal this guy? And I'm amazed by this whole juxtaposition because half the elders and Jewish Pharisees and scribes hated Jesus. They were sworn enemies. So here they are on behalf of the centurion, who, by the way, is a Roman Gentile pagan who, for the most part, did not get along with the Jews. They were the antithesis because they enforced taxation. They enforced law and order. They were like the policemen, the militia, the Gestapo of their time. So here this, this delegation of Jewish elders comes on behalf of this centurion to Jesus. And I'm going to go into the centurion a whole lot more next week. I'm going to save that because I didn't want to hit you guys with TMI. So I just thought, let's just focus on Capernaum and the set geography for, for, for today. And then we'll talk about personalities next week and the following week. But here these guys are, the, these, these major players in this little scenario. We have the Jewish elders. We have the centurion. We have the centurion servant. By the way, in the, in the video clip I just showed you there, it showed him as being a grown man. You know, a guy got facial hair and everything. Well, in the actual Greek, what I found out that, that the word leos means son, that he probably was a minor, a son, a, a young boy. He might have been the son of one of the centurion's other servants. By the way, a centurion was a, a Roman uh, uh, legionnaire, a guy who basically would be the equivalent of a captain in a U.S. Army who was responsible for 80 to 100 men, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less. But a centurion was the backbone of the Roman army. These guys had power. These guys spoke on behalf of the emperor of Rome. They spoke with unparalleled, unmatched authority. They could kill a person without a trial. They could kill a person without a hearing. They had unparalleled power. They were only answer to a cohort who was over maybe a larger battalion or to the emperor himself. In, the, in this case, would have been Caesar or, or probably uh, Herod. So this guy has unlimited power deferring to Jesus who has all power and boy that's just a beautiful illustration of humility and submission and may we all take a lesson out of this guy's book may we all learn from the mistakes that the city of Capernaum made that they saw all these miracles they saw all these great things all these signs and wonders and they still did not believe that, that to me just says, you know what? Miracles is not enough to get people saved. Amen? And basically, basically by the way, if you look at the, uh, the, the account of Lazarus and the rich man, that's exactly what the Lord said to the rich man. The rich man said, Lord, will you just send Lazarus back to warn my five brothers, you know, Tim, so that they don't come to this place. Keep my five brothers from coming here, right? Remember what the Lord said to Lazarus? He said, hey, I'm sorry, to the rich man. He said, hey, look, your five brothers, they got Moses. That means the five first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and they have the prophets. That's the rest of the Old Testament, which was the Bible at that time. The New Testament had been written. So he said, your five brothers have the Bible. They have the unmitigated, unerrant, um, total, complete word of God. If they don't believe that, they're not going to believe someone come back from the dead. Miracles is not enough. Miracles and signs and wonders will only daze and, and, and amaze and, you know, entertain for a minute. 
But Jesus said it right in Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Only the word of God can change our hearts. Not miracles, not signs, not wonders. Only the word of God. So as I close, I came to this question. I'm, I'm always asking questions about what Jesus is doing because I want to understand the why behind the what. And I'm asking the question, Jesus said the man's faith was great, that there was no one in Israel that had parallel faith with his. And I'm wondering, would the Lord have said that his faith was great had he declined or chosen not to heal the servant? What if the results were different? What if he said what if he said to what if he said to the centurion what he said to Paul when Paul three times pursued the Lord in 2 Corinthians 12? Would you take this thorn out of my flesh that's buffeting me? Would you remove this from me? Would you give me deliverance from this? Whatever it was, illness, blindness, whatever was attacking Paul. And I'll tell you what, what the Lord said. The Lord said. The Lord said to Paul, no, not gonna do it. My grace is sufficient. I'm not going to do it. And he didn't do it. What if the, what, what, was Paul's faith any less than the centurions? I submit to you, no. I submit to you that the reason that the Lord said that the centurion's faith was great had nothing to do with the results. Because I feel in my heart of hearts, I wrote it in my notes, I want to get this quote that I feel the Lord dropped into my heart. I wrote down, our faith in God can't be, it, it can't be based on the results of our prayers. Our faith in God has to be based on who God is, not what God does. Who God is. God is great whether he gives us what we want or not. Amen? Amen. 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 I, I put in my notes, I, I put in my notes uh, kind of like the Monday morning moment. Great faith, great faith does not change God's will. It only empowers us to agree with God's will. That's what great faith is. Faith, great faith is us uh, learning to agree with God. 1 John 5, 14 says, we have this confidence that if we ask according to his will, when we get on the same page as God, when we're asking for what God wants to give us, when we're agreeing with what he is doing in our lives, that is great faith because that's not results-based faith. That is God-based faith. That's where we need to be. By the way, that's what this whole little mini-series is about in January, about, Lord, building our faith so that we can believe you the way the word of God tells us to believe you. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your time. We thank you for giving us this time. We thank you for your word. We ask you, Lord, to let it sink into our hearts that it might build up our faith because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And Lord, we know that we grow by knowing you, knowing more about you, knowing more who you are, knowing what you do for us, and understanding how to love you, Lord. Help us to fall in love with you through your word so that we can be changed, that we can be transformed, that we can be made into your image, Lord, conformed by your righteousness. Help us, Lord, to learn to love you, love your word, and love your will. We know that that's where faith comes from. We honor you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.